Bismillahirrahmanirrahim ve sallallahu ala seyyidil mürselin ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ve sellem ecmain. Greetings of peace. Hello world. This is Baraka Blue and you are tuned into Path and Present Podcast. This episode is with our brother, our friend, our elder, our teacher, the healer, Hakim Archuleta. Hakim is a brilliant and beautiful human being and one of our great elders on the path. He has a wonderful story and he's a wonderful storyteller. So I won't say much by way of introduction. But Hakim is one of these people who converted to the path of La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah many decades ago. And um, he was in the Bay Area, part of a theater company, poetry, art, counterculture, spiritual inquiry and seeking uh, in the 60s. And he was also accompanied by our dear friend and teacher, uh, poetry teacher, the late Abdul Hai Moore. And they were part of a, a great collective of artists who then took the path and became students of the great uh, Sufi Sheikh Muhammad ibn al-Habib, which was under the guidance of um, the Muqaddim, the representative Abdul Qadir Sufi. And they were part of really a Sufi commune, um, which was active in the 60s and 70s. And many interesting and brilliant and prominent and unique souls were part of that community, including uh, previous guest author Harun Sugic, including uh, prominent scholars such as Dr. Omar Farouk Abdullah and Sheikh Hamza Yusuf, and many, many more. So, uh, alhamdulillah, I've talked to the people in that community about that time and their experiences, and it's a it's a really fascinating subject that, that interests me a lot. Uh, alhamdulillah, I just wanted to say thank you for listening and supporting the podcast. Uh, it's Ramadan, so we're trying to share the blessing of this blessed month with you through sharing some of these conversations with blessed souls. If you enjoy the podcast, uh, there's three ways you can support. The first and most important is your dua, your prayers, your positive intentions, and your light. Secondly, to share, to share with anyone who you think might be interested, with your people, with uh, anyone who these topics might uh, relate to or might spark interest in. And then third, if you can support financially, we have a Patreon page, and Patreon allows people to support uh, content creators, Ours is patreon.com slash path and present. And you can support with as little as a dollar a month, five dollars a month, ten dollars a month. And that goes a long way and helps us to support the uh, production costs of this podcast. Alhamdulillah. Uh, before we give you the podcast with uh, Dear Hakim, I wanted to kick it off by reciting a short poem from his old friend, Abdul Haimur. Alhamdulillah, I remember years and years ago, 
maybe 10 years ago about now, we did a poetry event at Tetleaf Collective in the Bay Area where I had the opportunity to open up for Hakim as well as Abduhai Moore sharing their poetry. It was a beautiful event. And I remember, I think, after the event, uh, Hakim led us in a hadra, <laughs> which was quite memorable. So this is from his friend, Daniel Abduhai Moore. The heart came out of the body and spoke. And by heart we mean that living forest of swinging birds and musical knowledge interwoven among leaves of ancient trees. By the heart we mean the heart of the heart, which is a boundless ocean waiting for the touch of God to illumine under the brightest sky. By heart, what is meant is what already knows the truth, the way trees know how to grow. Here's Hakeem Archuleta. Alhamdulillah, I had the opportunity, as I mentioned to you earlier, to have um, Michael Sujik and uh, Peter Sanders on the podcast, Yeah, who I, I know are two people who were you have long histories with and part of the community that you were in. Mm-hmm. And there's other people who are near and dear to me and also very... You know, many of them, you know, have gone on to be quite influential um, in the Muslim community more generally in the West and beyond. Um, like Dr. Omar Farouk Abdullah, like Sheikh Hamza and mm-hmm. others, who all come out of the same community, the Habibia. Yeah. And um, for me, it's been really amazing to kind of speak to the numerous people that came out of that about that trajectory about the kind of counterculture 60s and 70s and then about the journey into Islam and being part of that community whether it was in England or Spain or various places in Norwich. America yeah. Norwich yeah and various so, places in Berkeley yeah yeah so and then off mic I've had the opportunity to talk to you know Abduhai Moore Allah rest his soul, who's, you know, I consider like a, you know, poetic inspiration and mentor to myself. So anyway, this is a really important chapter, I think, of Islam in the West. And I think it's a chapter that many people know next to nothing about. Um, So I'd love to just hear a bit about your journey. Um, And I've heard a few of the stories and I, I love hearing them. So, um... Maybe you could take us back to the, was it called the Floating Lotus Opera House? <laughs> Is that a good place to begin? <laughs> I like that name. <laughs> Floating, Lotus, Floating Lotus Opera Company. Mm. Um, and yeah, that was an interesting thing. That was Abdelhai Moore's uh, initiative, mm. you know, as a poet. And he wrote the scripts for remarkable things we did. I mean... There's no question about it during that period of time. If we were not using drugs, we probably had been using drugs enough so that it was pretty, you know, radical. I mean, a lot of things happened very radically in those days. Mm. 
I personally was in, in uh, art school, and we began doing uh, what we called uh, events. And events started, events eventually led up to the Floating Lotus uh, creation. And events were things, it was a period of time happening, some people use that term happenings. And it, so we call them events. And they were things that, you know, really clever things that people did. And then there were artists who were, you know, developing art that was beyond, you know, just a, something on the wall or a sculpture, you know, but events. And so in those days, it was things like, you know, the, the, the sculptor who invited all of the, this used to happen on a regular basis in Berkeley, the sculptor who invited all of the professors and art students to his house for dinner. And he had bodies as tables, people on floors, and shadows or projections of their sculptures as food for them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, does, I don't know if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So on each person, for each person, there was their sculpture in the form of, on a plate. You know? Projected on Projected on it, or the shadow. There was a, a, an event... I, I mean, we started doing light shows. I used to do light shows. And that was, you know, where we do, I mean, projecting things with rock and roll concerts and, and all kinds of imaginative stuff. And we did that in art school. And we, we, I began to develop what I called, uh, I didn't call it everything. They were light shows, but they were, they were things that were projected on the screen through, camp, through lenses like a projector, but they were substances that would react to the heat of the lamp mm. so that there would be waxes and colors and, and it would begin this sort of natural thermodynamic event that would take place mm. that would have a beginning, a middle, and would dry up and there'd be, you know, it, it was, I mean, I'd like to do it again because I've never seen anything like it. Mm. But it was very exciting. And then there were events like People would do things like, um, like when super glue came about, someone would go to, I remember someone went to someone's house and glued everything in place. The doors shut, the shoes on the floor where they were, the glass where we went. So everything was fixed, you know, it was like making use of super glue. Or soon we would roll people up in carpets and then bundle them in the car, drive them up some, in the mountains somewhere and just drive away and leave them there. Or, or one man, this man, Michael Himowitz was his name. He's a sculptor. Uh, was he? Yeah, he's a sculptor. And uh, they drew, did that with him. They, they drove him to the mountains. And uh, he was kind of a womanizer. He had lots of girlfriends. And in, they let him out. He got, he got loose, you know, from where, whatever they had him rolled up in. And... The last girlfriend they had was behind a tree and leaned out and said, Michael, Michael. And she ran off and he ran after her. And then the girlfriend before that popped her head out. Oh, no. Michael. And they led him through this forest, this whole, they got all of these girlfriends that he'd had in the past. And then at the end, it was his mother. <laughs> Sounds like a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So those kind of events, I mean, there were lots of things like that. In a, in a conversation, 
What we did is we created an event for Up the High Moor that lasted 24 hours. And there were over 200 people involved in it. And what we did is we, we planned his day. And with, with walkie-talkies and communication in those days, we decided it was the, one of the questions that came up, it was during the 60s. And so someone said, well, if, if we were, someone was like running from the law, right, what would be the best way to evade them? And so the idea came up, all these different means of transportation. So one of the themes of that event for Up the High was to have him take every sort of imaginable kind of transport that we could come up with. Mm-hmm. And so, and then we each were given, we all were assigned like a period. Like I had two hours. And I had two hours from the time he was at UC Berkeley. He'd been delivered there by this blonde that he'd never met before in a sports car. And he was picked by this, uh, picked up by a friend of mine who had a convertible, like ancient, you know, a vintage Cadillac with a phone in it to be taken to the zoo. And friends from his childhood calling him on the phone that he hadn't heard from since he was a child. And then taken in a helicopter to an island where. Don Giovanni, the opera was reenacted because he said, I love Don Giovanni, the opera. So my gift to him for that period, two hour period was, was the helicopter ride to the island. So, you know, I mean, that event was the kind of thing where we would plan periods for his day of people and things to take place. And so it, it began in the morning with him awakened by an alarm at dawn and a woman is standing next to him with an alarm clock in one hand and a baby doll at her breast. He wakes up, and he's taken out, and he's put on a white horse, which takes him into the mountains. And there's a campfire, and there's some instructions for meditation, and then there's a motorcycle or a motor scooter. So he has to get on the motor scooter, drives down the motor scooter with an address, and it's in front of the... the KPFA, the broadcasting, you know, station, and in the woman's walk, it's a woman, old woman walking by with a baby carriage, and she says to him, "Could you watch, look in, and see that everything's okay?" And she leaves the carriage and walks off, and inside is his breakfast, and under the breakfast foods are questions, like these about history, and he's across the street from the library, so he goes to the library to look up the questions. And there are photographs of him when he was seven, six, you know, in these books that he looks through. <laughs> and then someone takes him to the UC Berkeley, and uh, this is the woman in the sports car, takes him to a classroom full of people and introduces him as Professor such and such, who's going to lecture on the topics that he had to look up in the books. And there's a, like 100 people in there. <laughs> and then he's taken in the helicopter and then on the... So when we did that, we planned for weeks, all the days, and I mean all the hours of the day, and then the people. And what happened is for a lot of us, for me and for many of us, events would begin happening in the day. And we'd think, hmm, this, someone set this up. Mm. You know, in other words, we lost touch with what was actually happening by a lust design, 
And what was orchestrated? And what is being orchestrated? Because it, we could, it seemed like, oh, someone's orchestrating this for me. Right. You know, and that was a, it was a kind of, it was a kind of breakthrough of a, of a, of a, of a barrier, a boundary of some kind. Mm-hmm. Because we, you know, for me, it enabled me to see that, yeah, Allah's setting this all up for us mm-hmm. at every moment anyway. There was a film made later called The Game with Michael Douglas mm-hmm. that was similar, uh, similar in, in the theme. When we finished that, the whole thing, the 24 hours ended, he'd been on a plane, in a boat, in a helicopter, motorcycle, train, every every sort of horses, different, you know, every means of conveyance we could imagine. And when we finished, we ended in the hills in Oakland and for a big party where everybody came together. It was over 200 people. And most of the people that he encountered in the planned day for him events, they were strangers. Yeah. And, and then he began describing, oh, this is an amazing piece there and that. And then he started describing piece, things that we'd never arranged. Wow. And people showed up who were not in the plan. Mm. So that was the opening and the kind of impetus that began the Sloating Lotus. Oh, I didn't know that. And, and so he wrote the plays. He wrote the stories for those plays. And we got very involved in it. And we studied all the sort of traditional theater Chinese opera, Indonesian puppet stuff, all that stuff. And we incorporated a lot of it into it. I did the, a lot of the sets and the design. and Because I was, a, I, I was an art school person. Mm-hmm. But he wrote, this, he wrote the, the plays. The first one we did was a, an extraordinary thing in which the, there's a chorus of people. And born from the chorus is a saint. And the saint comes and he speaks saintly things. Mm-hmm. We are all one, the truth lies within, and all these. And then as he's speaking these things to the chorus of people, mankind, people, a demon comes forth. Mm-hmm. And they do this great dance where the, the saint will say something and then the demon will say a counter thing. And they, they smash symbols together in the dance of mm. these two and then finally, the demon, the, the saint is sacrificed to the demon. And then from that is reborn a body of bread. And it's a human size, you know, baked bread in the shape of a human life size. And these, all of these theater productions were performed in public with, uh, without a stage. Usually in parks, we'd start by setting up like torch, torch lights it, to surround the area, to delimit the area. Mm. And then people would just be in the parks and they would, they would take part in some way. So the bread, the saint is brought out and everybody, all the audience takes the bread and eats it from this. Mm. Eats this. And then from that, after they eat the bread, then the, the combination saint demon is reborn as a whole person. So and and so that and then and then the other play that was uh, that he wrote that we did was one in, in you know to protest of the Vietnam War and the destruction of the planet. Hmm. So it was a remarkable thing that mm-hmm. came. So that's when um, out of that group, several of the people there became Muslim. Yeah. So I want to get into that, but that this is really interesting because these events or these happenings. 
the intention, what was the intention behind it? Was it just to kind of orchestrate interesting experiences for people initially? What was the impetus? Well, I think a lot of it grew out of most of us being artists and kind of, you know, stretching the, the boundaries of what uh, we could experience, you know. I mean, most of us had given, had gone through drugs. We weren't interested in drugs. For me, I left drugs behind. I was much more interested in meditation. Yeah. And uh, when you say drugs, like LSD, yeah, LSD, psilocybin. and uh, LSD, yeah, all the, the gamut of them. Yeah. <laughs> you name it. I mean, that was. The, I mean, the the cops were taking drugs those yeah. days. You know. What I mean? Yeah. You know that that whole thing of the events uh, and and the the big event for up the high. I I'm, I got kind of excited telling about because I hadn't told that. Yeah. To many people, he wrote about it, and I don't know if he ever published it. Did you ever see anything? I never like saw that? it. Yeah, I but I, I remember hearing him talk about these happenings, these events. Yeah, and um, yeah, I just think it's so fascinating that historical moment was really re. I mean, there was on a mass scale, um, really asking bigger questions about what is existence what is going on here you, like yeah. you say pushing the, pushing boundaries, the boundaries of normalcy like and and breaking frames yes breaking frame i mean the art school i went to that was one of the things they they pushed big time you know do something not only that's not typically done but you know defy the principles that you've been taught in art and so forth you know i mean all that mm-hmm. and i you know we did as much Pushing the imagination is what it was about, too. You know, the boundaries of imagination and, and the expected, beyond the expected. We used to do, mm-hmm. our happenings, we used to, when I was in art school, we'd, we'd be a bunch of students and we, we, we'd, we'd go to a film or something and we'd get, we would, uh, we would go up, up this, the street to different bus stops so we'd all get on individually as seemingly disparate people and then we'd begin to improvise some sort of thing. You know, on the bus, on the bus with all with all the people on the bus, experiencing it. Yeah. Um, you know, everyone reading something upside down, or something as simple as that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And, well, I like this because it's in a sense, and, and especially saying the kind of this, the plays, the coming out of it because it's in a sense saying, let's make. A, a play, a drama out of life, like we, you know, this we're all characters, and so it's really even asking, like, what character we do we want to be today, yeah. and you know, there's a profound teaching I think you find in, in the world wisdom tradition about that, you know, and I think, you know, Shakespeare has some profound lines about you know everyone plays their part, yeah. and even like in the Hindu tradition, it's, it's like about Leela, this kind of divine play where it's almost like the ultimate reality takes on these different pers- personas and yeah. acts this all out and we're all going to wake up and realize that's what's been happening this whole time, yeah. you know? Um, so well, and, and, and I think, like I was saying, you know, that the, the phenomena in which I very much, it's almost like a kind of paranoia. You think, you know, you're going through your day and suddenly you've realized Wait, this is this is set up. Yes. And, 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 that getting to this place where we realize, well, yes, it's all a setup. It's yes. called a lust design. It's all a setup. It's all a lust design. And, uh, you know, it took a long time to sort of, to kind of articulate it in that way. 
but to experience it was pretty powerful for several people in that group. Yeah. Yeah, just those profound moments where you can start saying, wait, what's going on here? Is this real? Is this a setup? Is this... Um, it reminds me of... Have you ever seen that show Punked? It was on MTV. Yeah. It was later, but basically yeah, yeah. the whole idea was they would set up these scenarios where yeah. someone would try to steal their car or yeah, whatever, yeah. and you and they freak out, and meanwhile there's hidden cameras, and, yeah, they, yeah. and then they... I think Ashton Kutcher or whatever comes out and says, you've been <laughs> punked. Right. You've been and punked so when too. I would have these kind of life experiences that were like kind of absurd, I'd be like, am I being punked? You know, it became kind of like a cultural reference for that. Yeah. But we are, we're all being punked in a sense, you know, like we're all being... Yeah, in that sense, we're all punks of Allah, you know, <laughs> exactly. he's, he's punking all of us. Exactly. But he's pretty generous punker. Yes, yes. <laughs> and a good sense of humor. I mean, yeah. um, and so... You mentioned that kind of your transition into Islam, and I've heard this story about um, Ian Dallas, Abdul Qadir the Sufi, coming, yeah. and you know, I think even Abdul Hai mentioned the story about picking him up from the airport and bringing him back, and all those things. So maybe you could share how that happened. How does Islam get entered into this mind-expanding, openness, creativity, spirituality, art? Well. Ian Dallas, Abdul Qadir Sufi, um, he, he, he is responsible in a great way, a great deal. And also Sheikh Mohammed Habib, mm -hmm. because of Sheikh Habib's, uh, we still believe, generally speaking, it was his barakah mm -hmm. uh, and his intention. Mm -hmm. Because uh, Abdul Qadir heard about that thing that was happening in Berkeley. It was quite remarkable. I mean, it was a community of people. There were hundreds of people involved in the, in the theater. You know, if they'd work on the sets or they'd come and just help out, they'd bring food or they'd do, they took part. It was a community uh, thing. And to this day, I'm a very big advocate for theater as healing and as medicine. And because it brings people together, uh, they work as a common, common effort towards a product result the breaking down of barriers between each people and the interacting and the communication, mm -hmm. all that happens in theater production. Mm -hmm. The play is, you know, they say the play is the thing. But, you know, it's, it's getting to that is most of it, getting mm -hmm. to that place. Mm -hmm. Something that, you know, people have done in prisons, you know, Shakespeare in prisons mm -hmm. and things like that. And I've always, you know, I've always recommended it. In, I remember in, in Glasgow, recommending it to someone who's working with gangs and street people, you know, street gangs, to get them into theater and get them producing plays and doing these things together. So that was very remarkable, and it became known, and everyone in Berkeley, it didn't go that far because it was not, uh, you know, there wasn't national recognition, although it was international theater, people knew it, living theater from you know, European, a lot of those people knew about it and they came and they took part in it and famous musicians had come, you know, uh, Terry Riley, I don't know if you know Terry mm -hmm. Riley, he'd come and he'd sit in and other musicians would come and sit in. And we, had, we had an orchestra, we had a full Tibetan orchestra mm -hmm. with Tibetan, and we learned to play these things. And the first time we ever got these things playing together, we, we put them on a flatbed truck and drove through the streets of Berkeley and it was the first time that Tibetan 
Buddhists, monks, had arrived in Berkeley, and they're sitting on the street as we're driving by, blowing these giant horns and everything. In any case, Abdul Qadir Sufi, Ian Dallas, met this man in Tangier, who was from the house of many of us who were part of the opera company. And I don't know if he'd heard about it from other people, but he was given a, a ticket when he was in Marrakesh, in uh, Tangier, a movie company from uh, L.A. gave him a ticket to come and work out something about writing a script. And uh, he'd just gotten this message and information about the house of these people that did this, this mm-hmm. floating lotus. And Ian Dallas, for those who don't know, I mean, up until that point, he was, he also came out of a, a kind of theater or drama background, right? Yeah. And then had become Muslim. Tell me a little bit about that he, for those who well, don't know. Well, he, he, he'd come out of a theater background. He's, I mean, his famous role is in Eight and a Half. Mm-hmm. And he was friends with Edith Piaf and, uh, you know, the, the filmmaker, what's his name, Fellini and mm-hmm. these people, a lot of those people, the French, intelli- French intellectuals, you know. Uh, and on the, on the, on the, the Marrakesh Trail, you know, met in... He has a book called The Book of Strangers. Do you, mm-hmm. do you know about I that? Do. Have you read that book? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that sort of chronicles his meeting with Sheikh Habib. But he met Sheikh Habib and was taken into Islam and taken by Islam and became... Right. And, and so Sheikh he's Habib, kind of a... He's kind of, you know, in the counterculture milieu, you know, of this, you know, early 60s... Um, you know, pre-hippie, really, but kind of counterculture art uh, in Europe. And he's in movies and he's writing scripts. And so he's kind of a person in that world. And then somehow he ends up uh, with Sheikh Mohammed ibn al-Habib, who is one of the kind of great Sufi saints of North Africa in the 20th century. Yeah. Um, and ends up basically becoming his disciple. Yeah. And then fast forward, he hears about you guys in Morocco at a cafe from someone who's yep. from your house, basically. Yes. And we forgot to mention, but the house was kind of a real eccentric. All these artist people that were involved in these things are living together in a kind of big house in Berkeley. So he hears about that. And you mentioned he had received a ticket, essentially, from someone in L.A. for a script he had written. So yeah. he, he had just to heard... Write, of, to write a script. Yeah, right, so he had company. just heard about you guys and came to his house and yeah. saw this ticket and said, oh, these two things go together, as you yeah. mentioned yeah. to me before. Yeah. So he... And that's up. very much his style. I mean, looking deeper, like, this came, <laughs> this came, this is not... They go together. Mm. And so he went... Took the ticket, went right. Never came. Never went to L.A. Never <laughs> went to the movie people. He went straight to Berkeley. Called us, and uh, he said, uh, "You know, I was told about you by such and such, and that you're interested in Sufism." And uh, and uh, so he said, "Yeah, well, I'd like to come and visit you because I could, I could tell you things about Sufism, something like that, with the high." And uh, and and you know, so we picked him up at the airport. He came to the house. And but tell me about that pickup, the car, right? Well, yeah, the car. Okay, 
the car was was kind of notorious, especially with the police. It was a car that so sculpture student again. One of these when people were doing sculpture, this sculpture student for his thesis, he took a, a Lincoln Continental, big, big though Lincoln Continental suicide doors. Right? Yeah, yeah, suicide door type things, convertible. And he redid it, and he, you know, covered it with fur and had horns on it and s- scales, metal scales and spines, like dinosaur spines. And, and we had planted, he had planted grass, there was grass inside. There was no, no seats. It was grass, you sit in the grass. <laughs> and the driver had a toadstool that he'd sit on to dry it. Yeah, the police, I'm surprised we didn't get m- m- more harassment. Those days it was a little easier, I guess. <laughs> They were kind of taken aback by it. But that car, we drive down the street in that car, you know, strumming our, playing, the, you know, mm-hmm. singing whatever from the opera type stuff and strumming what we played, these zithers, you know, we played, mm-hmm. we'd open tune these zithers and just, could just all have them tuned together. And we'd do that and sing. And I mean, it was, it was like super hippie kind of, mm-hmm. kind of scene. But everybody loved it, of course. Mm-hmm. People would pass by and everyone, you, you'd look back and you'd see these beaming faces. Mm-hmm. So Altacotter arrived and I, I mean, I, my own personal thing was when I spoke with him, I said, well, you know, because I would, I had, uh, at that time I had been north of Mendocino, north of Berkeley, and I came down to meet him. Came down and he was arriving. And at that time I was praying, I was singing my prayers. Because I was singing, I was singing Rumi songs then. Mm. I mean, I was singing songs from Rumi. Mm-hmm. So I was taking Rumi's poems and things from the Mathnavi and just spontaneously turning them into song and making some music with my wife. We had a couple of 200 instruments we had, mm. ethnic instruments of all kinds. She was a master musician, mm. and I just played it, but I played flutes. And anyway, uh, and so I used to sing my prayers, and I was praying before I came down to Berkeley. I was praying the same prayer over every day. I was saying Allah, or I was saying God, forgive me for wanting more, but there's something more I want. And Mm. I'm thankful, so thankful for what you've given me to Mm. this point in time. But I still want more, and forgive me for asking Mm. for it, but I want more. And I went to Berkeley and met Abu Qadr Sufi, and I said, so I hear you're interested in he said, uh, "He said, I hear you're interested in Sufism." I said, I, or I said, "I'm interested in Sufism." He said, "Forget Sufism. Mm. There's Islam, and this is what Islam is." And he explained me. And when I heard it, I, said, I mean, it was clearly the answer to my prayer. And what, do you, what did he say exactly? He said the five pillars. Mm. Basically, he presented like, "Okay, God is giving you giving you this guidance, mm. as He has mankind from the beginning." Mm-hmm. And so, you, you know, and I realized, oh, my God. Mm. I didn't say subhanAllah. Then. I didn't know the mm-hmm. words for subhanAllah. Mm. But, so I realized, that's it. This is what I've been asking God for. And I knew it took a half hour of the dawah. Yeah, I want to talk about that now. And I want to bring in what I would talk to Abdul Hai more. And I don't think he'd mind me saying this on, you know, recording it. Because I've heard him share it very, very publicly as well. But he talked... You know, he mentioned kind of, you know, picking him up in that car and then Abdul Qadir, you know, and you can imagine kind of this representative, a great scholar in Morocco, right? And he gets in that funky car and sits on the grass cross-legged and doesn't even say anything. Just, okay, we're here. 
Like not like what the hell is this car? But just okay. And wearing uh, wearing a mint green three piece suit. It's <laughs> <laughs> perfectly dressed. <laughs> and I think he mentioned that they like he wanted to go to have American food, so they went to some diner. You may have been here, but and Abdul Qadir like was shaking up the the uh, ketchup. Okay, that's. There's another story. It's another story. Yeah, they kind of mixed mix together. I don't think you heard that from Abdul Hai, maybe. I, may, I can't remember. No, it was from, because I was, that was something I was part of. Okay. Yeah. But so. I mean, these stories from Abdul Qadir are pretty remarkable. Yes. Some of them. Yeah. And so, but, you know, Abdul Hai mentions it coming into the house and seeing him put up some strange calligraphy, some strange writing, and basically saying, like, I've come to tell you that there is an unbroken lineage of prophets from the time of Adam all the way up through Muhammad who spoke the same truth, the same message. And since Muhammad, there's an unbroken lineage of saints and enlightened masters. And I am the representative of one, the, the, you know, one of the contemporary ones, Sheikh Muhammad ibn Habib from Morocco. And this is Islam. And kind of like, take it or leave it. Let me know if you, if you want to take this path. We'll do this together. If not... I'll see. I'll never see you again. Basically, <laughs> I mean, it was yeah. something like that. Huh? Yeah. Well, I mean, that he had his meeting with Abdul High, and he had his meeting with me. Right. I know when I heard when he gave presented that same principle to me, I knew it was the answer to what I'd been praying for, and I realized, and I knew also that I had to make. And, and so I said, "What do I do?" And he said, "You have to make ghusl. To make take a shower, make ghusl, make the intention to become Muslim." And I said, "Okay." And I realized I better do this quickly before I get sidetracked. Mm. So I ran in this house. I ran to the bathroom to take my shower and I opened the door and there were three people together in the bathtub. <laughs> and I said, I need to take a shower. And they said, oh, come on in. And I said, no, no, no. They won't work in this case. Please, can you get out of here right now? I need to take a shower. Yes. So they, you know, they kindly got out. And then I went to take a shower. I turned the shower on, and someone came pounding on the door. I said, stop, stop, stop. The water's running down next below. So I realized I was, it was like, I didn't know it was Chaitan. <laughs> you know, this reality was kind of coming and stopped me from doing this. Mm. So I just turned off the water. I got a pan of water, and I made my ghusl in the bathroom with the sink. You know what I mean? That was it. And everything changed. I mean, it was, mm. then it was swept from that day on. It just was like I was swept in a uh, great wave, like a surfing, you know, surfing a great wave that lasted to today, really. Mm. It was, you know, some little bumps of rocks here and there. <laughs> yeah. So, so, yeah, I want to hear about that wave. And before that, you, you guys, the kind of just vibe that you were in it was very open to kind of mysticism and eastern spirituality and things right like reading Rumi, we we were reading meditation we were studying all as much as we could to incorporate it into the theater Mm. and to understand it and 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 sufism became kind of the most noticeable thing that we came to Mm. you know i mean it was Rumi uh and uh, atar you know, mm-hmm. Conference of the Bird was part of our, just everybody's reading. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, it just stood out from everything else. That's kind of the typical thing that people do. You know, they discover, but there's a whole ocean of stuff here. Yeah. It's not, uh, I mean, even, what's her name, uh, 
Sinead O'Connor saying it's the it's the logical destination for anyone seeking mm. knowledge of God. I mean, yeah. Eventually, you're going to get to that if you keep if you keep traveling. If you stop on the way, you, you won't find it. But if you keep traveling, yeah. you'll find it. So speaking of traveling, so then I know you guys journeyed. So what came after entering Islam? Well, I mean, Abu Qatar was designated a muqaddam, a deputy, a representative, as you say, for Sheikh Habib. And he gave uh, Abu Qatar 13 diwans, that is, collections of his poems, and said, these are for my English and American fuqara, my English American students. And when we returned, the next time Abu Qatar returned with all of us, there were 13 of us, and each of us had one of those diwans. And so that was the initial group that, uh, you know, met with Sheikh Habib that time. So what year was that when you went to... It was, 19, it was 1970. In Meknes or Fez? Meknes. In the Zawiyah then? In the Zawiyah, yeah. What, what year did you say? 70. I didn't believe it. I'm terrible at uh, dates. Yeah, I mean, I'm around. really terrible at dates. <laughs> because I'm pretty sure we made it. And Abu Hain used to say... We used to discuss this. Say, well, it was sixty nine, wasn't it? No, it was seventy. Right, right. We went over and over that. I think it was sixty nine that we made. The, what was that like? What was that meeting? What was that? What was Sheikh Habib? Yeah. What? Just paint that picture. What was? Well, it? Uh, for me, I mean, that's what they, we all have our personal responses, you know. But uh, that first meeting with the group, mm-hmm. uh, it was pretty uh, kind of shocking and unexpected. It's like I, whatever I had had in mind, this person was nothing to do with that. Mm. So dis, disarming was the term that came up today. Someone said, my wife's favorite, one of mm. me, her favorite term, disarming is what it was. Like, For one thing, he had kohol. Mm-hmm. And, and that was a custom of many of his mm-hmm. students mm-hmm. were still people who wore kohol those days. Mm-hmm. And because of the tears, the kohol was running mm. down his face, you know, like a, like, like a woman who had been crying in their mascara was, yeah. <laughs> you know. So that was disconcerting. Um, I mean, the first thing he said something to all of us, and the first thing he said to me was asking me about my family in California. Hmm. And that cut to my heart because my daughter had been missing and been away from her, and hmm. it was almost like he knew that. Hmm. But the, the humility and the sensitive kind of kindness. This is what, to me, to this day, uh, typifies the people of his mm. following and his, his, of, of his uh, people like him. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I, at another point, Abu Qadr took me at, individually to Sheikh Habib. And, I mean, this is a story of, personal story that because as we were going through Meknes through the village towards Dizawiya I was feeling very uncertain about being Muslim and dressed in a jalabiya and looking mm-hmm. like a white guy and you know mm-hmm. people were kind of making fun seemed like they were mm-hmm. making fun and so I began doing the shahada you know la ilaha illallah started doing under my breath and I kept doing it. I just thought, well, I'll just do the shahada so I can just, these people were not, will not annoy me. I won't be distracted. Because so I'm going to see Sheikh Habib. The Qatar was taking me to meet him personally, one-on-one. And uh, 
we got there and I stopped. Salam alaikum. Sheikh Abi called me up, took my hand, and said, Ashadu la ilaha illallah, Ashadu Muhammad Rasulullah. He said mm-hmm. all the th- what I'd been saying all the way mm-hmm. to, to see him. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, that's the, that changes someone. Mm-hmm. That changes one deeply for something like that to happen. Mm-hmm. And you know that was uh, you know that was like I said to you before uh, I think about how everyone has spent time with Sheikh Habib has five stories mm-hmm. three that they tell and two that are so personal this one is pretty close to being the one I don't tell because mm-hmm. it's so personal yeah you know but I do feel it to be a great honor to have made the shahada with him I mean made, made my shahada with Abdul Qadir mm-hmm. in Berkeley with the shower and that whole thing. Mm-hmm. But then I repeated it there, and I really respect that and honor that greatly. I, I kind of feel like I have not met the honor of that appropriately still. Mm. I really, I, I don't feel I've done as much as I should have mm. in respect to that. And, you know, I ask Allah to make that possible because I feel like I've not, I've not learned Arabic in a way I should have, mm. for example, and Quran, as much Quran. But you know, I, I I've seen things and I've experienced things with with all of those people, and from that time on, with Abdul Qadir, I mean, to give you know, with due respect, I mean, I respect that man very very highly. Whatever he did that was out of place, whatever criticisms people 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 say, oh, he's not a legitimate Sufi, and so I think uh, Sheikh Habib when he gave him the designation and the name a Sufi was saying, look, this man is Sufi. <laughs> whatever else he's done, whatever else he does, the criticisms you have, and there's some people that dislike him terribly. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, respected people. You know, mashallah. But, uh, but his style then, you know, was very creative. He, he, I mean, he had some of the same qualities. We were, you know, breaking boundaries and frames. Right. Right. That he did. I remember in the Zawiya in London, when we were all there, we developed this little community. It was made, I don't know how many people, there were many families. Yeah, so that's the next stage. That was when you guys were squatting in the in London. Yeah, it was it was a it was a legal squat though. I mean, yeah. it was something that we we went to the council, the the, the the city council, and said, "Look, we'll take care of these houses. We'll fix them up even, and we'll just pay for the uh, taxes." And so we did that and took over a whole kind of block area. And so all of these basically American and European Sufi Muslims yeah, who are basically a branch of the Darqawi Shadili Habibia order mm-hmm. with the great center in Meknes around this great living saint. And then you guys are just having a community. Yeah. In London. In London, made a veil. And how many people were part of that? I, I, I don't, you know, I, I can't remember. It must have been 30 people, maybe, something like that, maybe more, and kids. Um, I'm not sure how many. And I've seen some of the pictures where you guys are in, like, Moroccan attire, kind of parading through the streets and, like... Yeah, we were, we were very overt. I mean, there was a period of time... I mean, the stories, the stories are endless yeah. of things. I remember we were, because we'd dress in suits sometimes with turbans. Mm. Sometimes we'd be in jalabias with turbans. But always something 
something like that. This was all the car pushing us, you know, you should do this, you should do this. And I remember once we were in with Colonel Rahim. Colonel Rahim was this colonel from the Pakistani army who, he was the one who Abu Qadr, when he, when Colonel Rahim snapped his fingers, Abu Qadr jumped. Hmm. The only person they ever saw that he would respond to. He listened to him and, uh, you know, he told him, he, he once wrote a poem, Abu Qadr once wrote a poem about the grasshopper and the, and the frog, with him, Abu Qadr being the grasshopper and Colonel Rahim being the frog. Colonel Rahim was this man who looked like a frog. I mean, he was by standards with warts and funny teeth and mm-hmm. jowls and skin, dark eyes. And by standards, he was the most, most ugly imaginable mm-hmm. and the most beautiful being I have known, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we never sat with him without tears. But Abdul Qadr jumped when he snapped, when he said, when he clapped, you know. And uh, once we were driving with with Colonel Rahim in a VW van, and we all had turbans on, you know, robes and turbans, and we passed the Buckingham Palace with the guards, and they all saluted us. <laughs> these these American, and Colonel, had, Colonel Rahim, without a blinking, he said, they're saluting your iman. Mm. <laughs> like, mm. He said, they, they recognize your iman, and they salute, they didn't even know why. So these kind of things happened on a daily basis. Right. So much so that it became the norm. And I remember, I don't know if it was yourself or Abrahai, but one of those meetings in uh, in uh, in uh, Abdul Bari McCabe's house, talking about how at one point in this house that you're all kind of living and squatting in, you know, and you guys used to do a lot of dhikr and hadras and things, but... One, Abdul Qadir said one day, uh, raise your hand if you want to go out and work. And half the people raised their hand and he said, raise your hand if you want to stay and do dhikr, you know, rem- chant remembrance of God. And other half raised their hand. And then he said, okay, those that want to stay and do dhikr, go out and work. Those who want to work, you, you know, so he, he opposite. And, you know, things like that. It yeah. Just kind well, of. That was his style. Yeah. That was his style. Very yeah. much so. Breaking frames and. And doing things that one one would never expect. Never, I remember someone who was had uh, joined the Fulkara, the group, and uh, was went to the airport with me to meet him, at, coming in San Francisco airport, I think. And he said, uh, "Yeah, I want to. I, did, I can't wait to meet Abdul Qadir. You know, I want to tell him about my previous Sufic experiences. You know, and and I thought, well, okay, you know." So we met him, and he began his biographical, autobiographical kind of spiel, but he didn't get past the first couple of words. You know, he said something, I don't know, two words or three words, and Abdul Qadr said, don't say a word, I could write your biography. <laughs> and he stopped, that was it. Didn't say a word after that. But that was his style, too. Mm. Mm. Yeah, very Jalali in his uh, nature, and on the other hand, very charming. Mm-hmm. So as much as the women who had difficult times with some of the lifestyle, uh, my ex-wife, who was, at that time she was my wife, and you know she was taken by him just charmed, and probably more uh, kind of a about him, 
during that period of time than I ever was, mm. in fact. But, you know, looking back, she's got some bad taste in her mouth about the whole thing. But Right, so... But so he was this mixture of charming to anyone, like the, the this ketchup story, mm-hmm. you know. So maybe tell that for yeah, those. Yeah, well, that, that's... I, I spent a lot of time with Abelkata traveling in this country and, and you know, and, and in Morocco and... I was one of the people he trusted driving him. Most people he couldn't get into car. He was very sensitive, mm. hypersensitive being. Mm. And uh, at the airport, San Francisco airport once, he liked ketchup, French fries with ketchup. He liked pancakes as well too. I'm sorry, I, he and I love pancakes both. So we'd like get, you know, just typical American diners. We get pancakes, and he was a, you know, he was a gourmet French. In any case. He's there, and he likes to take. He takes the ketchup bottle and shakes it up before he puts it on the out for the French fries. And he shook, shook this bottle, and the top came off, and the ketchup slung itself across the room in this airport restaurant, across one woman's face, across <laughs> across most of the people sitting there. It's just, and he and he and he just, you know, put his charm into gear, saying. With his British accent, you know, oh, I'm sorry, 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 sorry. and he started apologizing to, oh, you know, and and everybody says, no, 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 it's okay, it's okay, you know, and they're they're cleaning the ketchup off their their fresh traveling clothes, dresses and stuff, off their faces and hair, (laughs) and after a while, you know, they're all, they're apologizing, but no, 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 don't worry about it, it's perfectly all right, that's, he did only have, he didn't have to do much say a few words the accent and the, mm. they're apologizing and then afterwards we're eating and this is a classic avocado lesson he says so look what happened here something to that effect and I said yeah I know he's like he said well what do you notice and I said well everybody's happy they're all fine in fact they're happier than before mm. and he said okay that's true everybody and I looked around and I saw this one guy sitting there plumb. I said, no. And he said, and? And I realized he didn't get any ketchup. <laughs> the one guy that didn't get hit. <laughs> he didn't get hit with it. And he was all depressed, like, oh, man, why didn't I get some ketchup on me? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a great, it's a, it, that's the kind of lessons that he gave without, not everybody got that, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, to see... Sheikh Hamza got it. Mm. Hamza got a lot from Abdelkader. He still has a lot, and mm. uh, you know he got a lot of other things as well. But also Abdelkader set him on the path he went on to yeah. Mauritania, and yeah. as a scholar, I mean he knew him. He knew who he was immediately, mm. um, and said that at the time. Mm. Really said, "This is who you're going to be." So, yeah, I mean, you have this community in London, and then at some point, there's a community in other cities, and then in Spain, and then it's hard for me to even track the timeline, because there was then communities in the States, from Santa Barbara to Tucson to all all over the place, and it's like this kind of network, it's a big community, but there seems to be a pretty big kind of, is it correct to say that the community before the passing of Sheikh Mohammed ibn Habib and after was very different because before he passed 
that you have a very clear Sheikh. Abdul Qadir is the Muqaddam, his representative, but that's very clear, you know, who's in charge. And, but after he passes, then it's different. Then essentially Abdul Qadir, you know, you know takes the, the space of the Sheikh. Is this a correct way to Well, <clears throat> yes and no. Mm-hmm. He was a Muqaddam and everybody sort of accepts that that was legit. Mm-hmm. that he was a Mokadam, without a doubt. Sheikh Habib said the single most important quality of a Mokadam is they speak the language of the people that they're mm. representative to. Mm. And uh, that was surely true with al Qadr. He was very hip. He knew the story, knew the scene, knew more, <laughs> you know, plus the intellectual scene, the historicals, all this stuff. <coughs> so I kind of... I kind of left some of it. I mean, there are stories, there are things that took place after Sheikh Habib died. Some of them I'm, I'm not that comfortable talking about, but I will say that there was a de- genuine, I personally know, there was a genuine inheritance from Sheikh Habib mm. to Abu Qadr. And, uh, you know, how he how he managed that, respected it, honored it, and played it out, that's an, a low item. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people stayed with him. I didn't at one point. I mm-hmm. chose to leave. But I know there, there were a lot of things that took place. And if anything, I would say that Al-Baqarah was more likely, I could say probably more fairly, he was forced, or not forced, but insisted was in by by several people in he was pushed to take on the role of, and be a sheikh for these people that would be left if he if if he didn't stay with them because mm-hmm. he was periodically wanting to leave mm-hmm. he'd had enough you know he he had enough of what he said either people either treat him, treat him like the, the 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 trash collector the garbage collector or the uh, the uh, you know the Emperor of China, you know, these, you know, these two extremes, and he just wanted to have normal hmm. face-to-face exchange with people right. uh, a lot of the time. But he also had short temper with people and very often with their, this other stuff that, that we have in, the, mm-hmm. in ourselves. So, you know, I, my, I may have my own story like that. I, I, I don't, I'm not sure I should really talk about it. No, but fine. but there was that. a kind of pushing by some people for him to stay in that role and take the responsibility of these people that had gone to Norwich. I never went to Norwich. That was the next, from D- Bristol Gardens in London, the next chapter was going to Norwich. Okay. I didn't go to Norwich. I went to Pakistan instead. Mm. Then I met my teacher there. And, and then Spain came after that? Only that was at the same time as Norwich. Spain was around that uh, same time as Norwich. Spain was happening. When I was in Pakistan, Spain was happening. Mm-hmm. That's I've heard a lot about that from Dr. Omar. Dr. Omar met up with him. And, and I had never met Dr. Omar, you see, until much later. Mm. Because I was not in Spain. I was there in London when the Spaniards that started the, the seeds of the Spanish community. They came to Bristol Gardens. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Mansour. Allah bless him. Um, and some of the other first three or four people that came from Spain. 
very, again, they were the seeds, you know, like from them came, I mean, how many Muslims now in Spain that are mm-hmm. Spaniards, converted sure. Spaniards, sure. and Rosales and yeah. all these people that came as a result of that. But then earlier today, because that's another really interesting chapter, because then at, at what point, so you were in Pakistan and you were studying, what were you studying in Unani, Unani Tib. Hik- well, I was studying more than that. I was studying Hikma, because my teacher, you know, I went. I was invited there by Hakim Saeed mm. from Hamdard, which is he's the most famous uh, Hakim internationally, mm. and uh, and I met him at the World of Islam Festival mm. in 1975 in London, and I told him I wanted to study this traditional medicine. He said, "We'll come to Pakistan," so he. And that was a big deal, the World of Islam Festival. Yeah, and that a lot of things happened in that. That was a big event, and. Yeah. Uh, uh, what's his name? Keeler. Uh, Ahmed Keeler. Right? Ahmed Keeler. Ali Keeler's father. Ali Keeler's father was. He was the basically initiator of that whole event. It's only right he became a Muslim after, as a result of it. Who? It's only. A, oh, he a, wasn't before that. No, I don't think he was. No, when he that's. I think that was when he became Muslim. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Anyway, so that happened, and 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 so I went to Pakistan, and then, um, yeah, I was there for a couple of years when. Norwich was taking place, and then where things started sort of, the community of that, of the Qadr and his community and so forth, began to sort of shatter and dissolve, fragment yeah, and dissolve. Yeah. Things happened. and So, what is a Hakim? Traditionally, what was the role of a Hakim? How, how did a Hakim serve people? Because I think it's a, it's a kind of unique and... Uh, beautiful kind of role and path well I mean <laughs> on, on, in one way it's just simply a traditional doctor you know in and, and, and Pakistan, India, Iran and those places I, to some degree still in Turkey it's, it's the traditional they, they inherited for the most part the Unani tradition mm-hmm. so the Hakims you know the Muslims in general took on all the scholars took on the studying of the Greek medicine because it was not in contradiction to our principles. Mm-hmm. So Mawati will are heaven and earth, and then from that earth, air, fire, and water, and those basic, that basic approach. And the Greeks were very advanced and very sophisticated in their medicine of all sorts. Mm-hmm. I mean, deep in principles. So when I went to Pakistan by Akim Said's invitation, I... Uh, and, they, and he set it up so I had sponsors, you know, people paid for me to stay there and study. But I, you know, he was not a teacher. He was a politician and he was the president of Pomdard Foundation, which made medicines and sold them across the world, mostly India, Pakistan. Hmm. Traditional Unani preparations, you know. Hmm. And so I finally, and I, you know, I spent months, several months, I mean, almost three months looking for a teacher. And I found this man who said, uh, my grandfather taught me medicine in the forest, and I will teach you whatever you can use and whatever you need, be at my, be at my house tomorrow morning at 7. And the fact that he said he, I, he learned it in the forest, it meant to me at that time that it was what I was looking for. Mm-hmm. The pattern, the hikmah in Allah's creation, mm-hmm. that is the patterns and relationships of things 
the placement of things, you know, all of that sort of how it all fits together, the wholeness of the Allah's creation in that sense. And that's who he was. He was an amazing man. And he gave me every day, all day, as many, many hours as I wanted from him. Mm. And he read from his grandfather's text uh, notes and translated them for me. And I made my notes and I have stacks of notebooks from that period. Mm. Um, and I saw patients. And, you know, so I, that was my study on that foundational thing, which I still respect very highly. I love, bless him. You know, he passed away some years ago. So the Hakim, you know, the Hakim, you know, is some, in some cases known as the sage, the one that has hikmah, pretentiously. You know, mm-hmm. Allah is a Hakim. But uh, it became, you know, and then there's, the, you know, the Hakim who was the doctor of traditional Unani, mm-hmm. uh, and the Tabib, which is more the one that practices from Tib, the physical, right? The physician, we might say. Right. The hakim is more like the healer. That's just the healer. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's you know, generally it's like that. I mean, the my teacher Takiuddin, his grandfather was in Ajmer, mm. and that's Chisti. He was in, in, in Ajmer, and uh, there are stories about him. You know, about when when antibiotics came into practice people started using them. And they felt, you know, they'd go to, uh, to, uh, Hakeem, my, my memory is getting terrible, I guess, names, uh, Nizamuddin of Ajmer, they'd go to Hakeem Nizamuddin, you know, Takuddin's grandfather, and, and they'd give him the antibiotics. And they'd say, I want to take this medicine, but I can't take it unless you give it to me. So he would give them mm-hmm. the antibiotics. I mean, that's so. What you're saying about the, you know, the kind of honor that people mm-hmm. had, and that tradition, you know, it's been kind of almost embarrassing at times for me. Not embarrassing, but it's been kind of remarkable that in the Islam, in the tradition of the, you know, Indian and Pakistani tradition, people regarded hakims very highly, mm-hmm. and you know, some of them were, were you know, pretty outrageous. You know, they. They produce, you know, money from under their... Sometimes it may have been true, too, but I think some of them were kind of showmen as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so people, you know, I have a lot of, say, India or Pakistani families that say, you know, uh, they refer to me as Hakim Saab, you know, and, and, they, and I might feel really honored, you know, when I feel, you know, like I have to live up to what they're mm-hmm. expecting of me as best I can. That's why I work so hard studying and work mm-hmm. as best I can give them benefit but but it's it's like filling this role of the of someone who's wise for the family you know and even the children you know I need to have a session with Hakeem you know I get eight-year-olds and nine-year-olds saying that and so that tradition of the Hakeem being something it's not like the sheikh or, you know, the mullah, or you know what I mean? It's got a particular quality to it, and a lot of families have that in their tradition. And a lot of families have hakims in there as their grandfathers and grand, you know, they're in their families. Hmm. So, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting thing, but it also is the, it's the direction into which I, you know, find myself at this conference now. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, in psychology, my, my direction, I came in not through psychology, but through hikmah. Mm-hmm. those traditions 
Yeah, there's a saga. There's a saga yeah. of, of Obligata and his people and the people that have gone out in various, with various kind of uh, pieces that yes. he sort of gave them. Yeah. Uh, you know, and remarkable students like Hamza. Yeah. Sheikh Hamza. Sure. You know, but Abdul Qadir, when he was there, I remember when Hamza was learning Wudu in Norwich, you know, and he had his, his clothing that he brought and, you know, in a nice suit for to wear, you know, properly dressed and everything, unlike the rest of the people at that time were he looked ragtaggle hippies. Mm -hmm. Hamza was not that an avocado telling him, you know, this is your destiny to be this person for the Muslims. Mm -hmm. Clearly. He said that to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. He told me I was I should be a Hakim. Mm -hmm. And I'd never considered I was an I was a I was an artist. Sculptor, painter, filmmaker. Mm -hmm. And uh theater person, I guess. Mm -hmm. And he told me that and it rang true. They knew it. And, you know, from that, when I discovered that, I discovered what I loved to do, which is study this, all this stuff. Hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's beautiful. I mean, we're here at this Defining Islamic Psychology Conference, and that's one of the things that, that I think about a lot. I mean, uh, I heard once... Uh, um, Ken Wilber say something that kind of struck me as funny, but also true. He said, you know, Tibet was essentially like sealed off from the rest of the world for thousands of years, right? Until the mid 20th century or whatever. And he said the highest level of kind of external civilization they reached was yak butter. That was the greatest like kind of civilizational accomplishment. Really? But he said, but inwardly, the reason wasn't because they were less sophisticated, it's because they focused on charting and understanding and kind of diagramming and exploring the inward yeah, states yeah. of human consciousness. Uh -huh. And I thought that was a, an interesting statement, but also it gets to something that, you know, likewise within Sufism. I mean, of course, the Muslims had, you know, great outward civilization in various periods, but particularly within the field of Sufism, I mean, it really is, I mean, people nowadays think Sufism is it's poetry or it's, you know, chanting or it's whirling or something like that. But at, at its essence, it's ilm and nafs. It's understanding the human being. It's understanding human psychology. It's understanding human potential and what is capable for a human to achieve or realize or awaken to and then it's also all the kind of um, pitfalls of the path and the, you know, diseases of the, the spiritual heart and the cures and the, you know, that whole thing. Inshallah. I mean, that's, I think that's what it's, that's ideally what it's meant to be. Whether it is, fulfills that or not is another question in the modern days. I mean, things have changed so dramatically. Yeah. The context for all this has changed. Sheikh Habib, <clears throat> at any time when we were there, there was at least four generations who were students. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my, my story about that in terms of who he was and the people around him, because, you know, the Prophet said, you know, my, any one of my companions, like, it's like a, you can be guided as a, mm -hmm. guided by the stars. Mm -hmm. And they were these remarkable people. Same when, when we first, when the first time I went to uh, Morocco, Meknes, 
I met one by one the Mokadims. And each time, because I didn't know anything, I was all new, it was like going back in time, felt like going back in time to be in Magnet. This Mokadem came and I thought, oh, this must be the Sheikh, you know, and mm. I discovered, no, this is the Mokadem from such and such a town, and they eat next to it, and oh, this must be. And each one of them were remarkable. But the, the, my personal story that's, I think, the most remarkable thing that I got from Sheikh Habib was when he came, Sheikh Habib, when he came amongst these Muqaddims who were all remarkable, I could see by his presence in each one of these men some degree of striving for or defeat by. And in him, zero. Mm. Nothing at all. No striving for anything or defeat by anything. Mm. And that's the nature of our, I mean, that's, you see that as the, these are the, the styles of people in the world. Striving for something, like I said, we were talking earlier about striving for some goal that's going to lead down a dead end road. Mm. Fame and notoriety and wealth and all these are dead end roads. But people strive for something. But that so so to see that absolute peace that is Islam. That absolute total acceptance of just simply being, mm -hmm. and his students that are the best of his students, they have that quality. They don't have to even speak. Hmm. Yeah. Well, that Harun Sujik, he said, um, I like it, it's very simple, but he said that the, the awliya don't have any skin in the game. And this, you know, most of us, right, there's a little subtle, at least like jockeying, or, oh, wow, wow, or me, or maybe I could. Oh, is that what mean skin in the game means? Yeah. You know what I mean? There's no like, yeah. there's no, <laughs> that's, that's there's no self that, that wants, no, that no. wants anything. Yeah. You know, for, for most of us, there's a self that would like this to happen or wants, yeah, yeah. you know what I mean? Or would like to advance in this way or would like to be part of this or whatever. Something. Something. Yeah. <laughs> but to not have that at all. Yeah, know? it's quite a remarkable thing to see. Mm. And to see it, I mean, it's like, you know, you can be there, but you may not see it. But if you see it, <laughs> it changes one. Right. Just to witness, oh, this is real. This is possible. This is, this this is possible. Whether I ever get to that yes. or not is not the point. This is what it's mm. about. But, yeah. And I wonder, I mean, what does that do to you? Because I think about that too. And my kind of meet, you know, alhamdulillah, I've been gifted to sit with, with some really amazing, remarkable, saintly people. And, you know, people... I think when they, you know, when you convert to Islam, and, and the, especially in the post 9-11 world, and the, just all these things, and people don't understand, or even Muslims, like, why would you stay a Muslim? Why did you, you know what I mean? And I think, for myself, it's like, once you have these reference points, that's what everyone is striving for. That's that when, the, when you got there. And then, so that's your reference point, and you see that everyone is in proximity to it. They're striving for or defeated by various stages in, in that. And so then you're able to see people's faults or most, you know, all of our shortcomings. And that's not your reference point anymore. That's not your model. Yeah. You know, now you have your model. So you're able to, in a sense, 
forgive or overlook or not be as bothered by whatever is going on here yeah. that's short of that. It's true. I think that's a pretty big piece of it. I mean, along with the fact that what we were referring to earlier, talking about earlier, is that when we did all the study of different world religions, I mean, suddenly you come across Islam and you realize, whoa, this is an ocean. Mm-hmm. This is like, <laughs> I remember once being invited by a radio station in Santa Fe to be a representative for Muslims in which we talk about angels. Mm-hmm. And they had a Christian and they had a Sikh, Sikh. Mm-hmm. they had a, a New Ager, and you know, a Jew, and and we started the program, and and they spoke about main angels in in few minutes, and they were ever done. And I realized, well, I could go on for this whole program, and I'm not even a scholar. I could go on and on about the, the what I've learned already. That C, so that's but but you're right. I think that's you know something when I because I remember having periods in which. I had existential kind of re-examinations, and I think it's a valuable thing for that to happen. Do I really want to? When you get disappointed by the Muslims, mm-hmm. which is inevitable, mm-hmm. people will disappoint you. That's the nature of people, insan. I mean, yeah. Mm-hmm. When you get disappointed, and you, you get disappointed again and again, and then you have to say, well, wait a minute, you know, maybe I should just go hang, hang out with the Hindus or the Buddhists or, you know, mm-hmm. And, you know, you, and it goes maybe a little deeper and you have this existential kind of questioning and reevaluation. And I remember having a stage in which that took place and I had to say, <laughs> I'm going to remain a Muslim, I don't, you know, without a doubt, but I think a lot of it. Because to me, one of the great discoveries was Islam, the, the vast ocean, and then second of all, the Muslims. Hmm. You know, the ones that I met that were like, Beyond, you know, they they were just precious beings, mm-hmm. the kings, the sultans, as they say mm-hmm. in the Qasida, do you know? Mm-hmm. And and people with such extreme kindness and and qualities that you can't, that aren't in their actions or words, but their states, like Sheikh Ali. Mm-hmm.